This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our panel. I'm Angela Mancini, and I head up our APAC Markets Group sitting here in Singapore, and delighted everyone can join us here today. Now, what we're going to do in this panel is discuss a little bit more specifically, sitting here in Asia, what can we actually expect to see in the year ahead, and how can businesses potentially start to grapple with this? So I think as many of you know, at Control Risk, we spend all day, every day out talking to clients about investments they want to make, problems that they're having, issues that they need to really grapple with as they try to expand and and future-proof their businesses. So our discussion today is going to be informed not just, of course, by our in-house analysis that we do, but by the hundreds of projects that we do for our clients across the region on exactly these issues. So what are the main themes we're looking at in Asia? The main one is, of course, COVID recovery. But there are a lot of other seismic shifts happening across the region as well. And how those play out, which is still in play, is going to determine what the landscape is going to look like for all of us in business in the years ahead. And so it's not just COVID. We're coming out of a pandemic in the midst of a massive energy transformation, in the midst also of a massive technology transformation. And we're sitting here in a region where supply chains are really interconnected. And as we know, as geopolitical tensions aren't going away anytime soon. So what does that actually mean for us practically sitting here working in businesses in Asia, and how can we think about that, not just from a risk perspective, but also from a growth perspective in the year ahead. That is what we're going to cover uh, in this panel, and I'm delighted to get get going with it. We've got a terrific team of our top in-house analysts here with us today. We've got Rima Bhattacharya, we've got Julia Coyne, Ahmad Sukasono, and Derek Ah. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Rima, let's start with you. You have been helping clients for several years now across Asia, looking at how to future-proof their businesses. And the broader team's been doing that primarily as it relates to issues like China. But we're seeing now an increased risk, obviously, with climate change. We're just off the back of COP26. Some mixed reviews of what actually came out of COP26 and what businesses in particular might be required to do. But you know, you cover not just South Asia for us, but you cover the issue of climate change and ESG more broadly for us across the region. What do you see from where you sit? What can businesses expect to see in 22 and where is this headed? Thanks, Angela. I think the global debate on climate change ultimately boils down to the uneven pace of energy transition that you were just talking about. 2022 will definitely kickstart the decade where transition dynamics, climate risk and climate action become a major implementation question for Asian economies and industries. Now, most Asian businesses, including perhaps uh, members of the audience who've joined us for this session today, see energy transition mainly as something that's relevant to the oil and gas sector or maybe other fossil fuel sectors. But what the transition is actually doing is that it is redesigning entire economies and by replacing conventional raw materials that power them with zero emission substitutes. It's rewriting the trading principles as well as globally, as well as in Asia's commodity markets, ranging from aluminium, copper to uranium, which will, of course, have massive implications for price volatilities and inflation. 
So in the coming years, um, net zero commitments will define the direction of travel for the world's major economies. But Asia's lack of preparedness, I would say, is pulling it in the opposite direction. What I mean by that is that we have no realistic plan to rationalize our fragmented supply chains to create opportunities for new green goods and services. We also lack any solid regulatory framework to implement green market mechanisms and financing models that are coming up. Most green technology solutions, given how expensive they are, remain well beyond the reach of many Asian countries. The only the ones that we have access to, such as renewable power and EVs, for example, face massive scale up challenges. So looking ahead, if you're a company in the 2025 energy economy with, say, operations all over Asia, serving the growing needs of a global market, which is buzzing with zero emission uh, products and services, the chances are that your regional units making the same products in the same way will face a confusing assortment of climate regulations and mechanisms that differ in scope and depth from one country to another. They will also face varying challenges in securing greener materials and scalable climate technologies amid shortages as demand for low emissions uh, solutions outstrips supply in key Asian markets. Last but not the least, Climate change-related weather events will pose the biggest continuity risks in the region. I think everybody knows and acknowledges it. But climate risk is yet to become a mainstream concept in, in macroeconomic policy and decision-making in Asia. Although many initiatives exist on paper, most of our regional governments actually lack the political will to fully integrate climate risks into national fiscal policy strategies, for example, or even national security considerations. So it sounds like regardless of what governments are doing, businesses are on the hook to ensure that they are ensuring their assets and operations are resilient and that they're going green to the best they can, regardless of what sector they're sitting in. So what are some practical ways they can actually do that? What's our advice right now for companies looking at this? Angela, the fact is that business glo businesses globally and in APAC are facing mounting pressures to come up with their own net zero plans, which are realistic and measurable. So the net zero imperative is not only shaping global and regional business priorities, but also becoming the innovation challenge of the century. Now, the green globalization wave, which is, desi is, is designed to incentivize and reward early movers. In Asia, this means that companies that put convincing net zero plans in place which would include proactively investing in decarbonization technologies, building resilience against climate risk, mitigating ESG risks throughout uh, their supply chains, will have a major competitive advantage over companies that are reluctant to act now and are looking for policies and regulations to come first. Now, businesses will, of course, need capital to decarbonize their assets and holdings. And for that, we're seeing financial institutions and governments asking companies to disclose more information about their exposure to climate risks and their climate action plans. The standard approach that I've observed here for most companies, including many of our clients, I'd say, is to disclose the bare minimum, only what's legally mandated. And here is where we are advising clients to look at the bigger picture. To make the most of these emerging green investment trends, I think businesses must be able to quantify and communicate both their ESG risks and performances uh, accurately. But 
unlike traditional financial information, a company's uh, ESG risk and information has to cater to a diverse set of stakeholders, ranging from shareholders uh, to suppliers who have competing agendas and priorities. So investors, for instance, may, may want to understand a company's performance only on a subset of ESG topics that affect the bottom line. In contrast, customers might want to know about more about the company's broader impact on society and economy. So a one-size-fits-all stakeholder identification or an engagement approach simply won't do in this region. I finally want to wrap up my answer by highlighting some of the commercial opportunities once again. Our global risk map forecast, which uh, very strongly, uh, I think, suggests that businesses will be left on their own to navigate a, a confusing patchwork of regulations through a disruptive energy and, and digital uh, transformation. While that's a risk, I also see immense opportunities for companies looking to disrupt traditional sectors with green solutions. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Let's take a geographic lens for a moment. Julia, let's turn to you. So China and India are obviously two of the biggest contributors, let's say, to the climate change issue in Asia. We know it. And again, just on the back of COP26, there's been mixed reviews as it relates to their actual commitments to address the issues. Can they do it? Will they do it? What do we expect to see from China and India more broadly? Yes, is the short answer. But we will see China and India doing more to balance uh, the short-term constraints with the long-term goals, which we all saw with the uh, scaled-down commitments on phasing out the use of coal in the coming years. The power shortages that we've seen globally over the past months have been particularly disruptive to China's manufacturing sector. And they've been a major source of pain for our clients globally, given China's importance to the world supply chains. Our clients have been trying to manage global production schedules amid uncertain capacity and running times for their factories. They've been worried about magnesium or other supply shortages that they rely on China for. And the power shortages, they've obviously not just happened in China, but here they've been exasperated in part by poorly managed efforts by local officials to meet energy usage reduction and, and other environmental targets. So this has prompted China to calibrate its approach and to adjust its phase out timeline to really only ramp up from 2026. But the long term goal has not changed. China will continue to prioritize development of clean energy alternatives, not just for environmental and climate change reasons, but also to improve energy security and manage its dependence on foreign energy imports and all the competitive reasons that Rima just mentioned. For both China and India, this push for greater energy self-sufficiency and prioritizing development of domestic energy capabilities will probably undermine multilateral cooperation on climate change. But like Rima also said, at the same time in China, it creates opportunities for foreign investment in developing renewable energy and green technology. Mm -hmm, great. Thanks for that. And let's talk about that a little bit more specifically, Rima, and turn back to you. We hear a lot about green finance and green technology as being, you know, big potential investment opportunities for clients in a lot of different sectors actually here in Asia. How do you see that playing out in the year ahead and beyond? Angela, I think in 2022 and beyond, most of the incoming foreign investment into Asia will be money to finance the energy transition. We'll see a rapid scale up of uh, country level investment platforms, for example, voluntary carbon markets and restructured multilateral banks. All of that geared towards funneling cash into decarbonization and climate adaptation projects. 
Now, if you look at the energy sector, for example, a sector where we've been doing a lot of work lately, most Asian countries have theoretically pivoted from their large-scale reliance on coal towards gas-fired generation and renewables. However, as Akmat will tell you, I think, these governments have a limited understanding of the hidden environmental, social, and governance costs and trade-offs associated with renewable technology. Uh, governments in Asia, I think, are more focused on leveraging renewable energy projects to boost their investment credentials among global peers and create a new lucrative asset class in, in the public infrastructure project space and balance international criticism of their continued reliance on coal. So in Asia's emerging markets, what we've seen is that the lack of an understanding of renewable uh, technologies has led to rather miscalculated government incentives that are likely to do more harm than good. We see countries like India fast-tracking big renewable projects without going through a rigorous environmental clearance process, for example. We see numerous governments offer speedy land lease approvals and other tax exemptions to renewable energy developers without due consideration of the project's impact on local communities while selecting sites. So such policies will foster increased competition for land, governance, and justice challenges that are all intractable and inadvertently linked. So for uh, global businesses and, and investors, failures to, to identify um, and, and prioritize the, the social impact of, uh, of green technology will not only have immediate reputational, operational, and legal repercussions, but also potentially undermine the sector's uh, competitiveness in the long run. Mm -hmm. Ahmad, let's stay on this topic, but turn a little bit closer to home here in Southeast Asia. You cover Indonesia. You have for many, many years. And as we know, Indonesia is an economy that's an energy economy, and it's an old school energy economy and has been for a long time. But we're seeing, you know, increased green investment there and an energy transition. Can you talk us through a little bit about what you're seeing and what that means for investors? So they're very much in play, Angela. New energy investments green energy investments have been heading for Indonesia lately at a time when non-Chinese investors in oil and gas, in old, old energy, old school energy, are leaving. But let's be clear. Being green does not automatically mean they are a force of good in the eyes of the locals. Just like old energy investments, new energy investments must navigate through a jungle of operational and political risk. The risk can even be greater for these green investors, as many of them are greenhorns in investing in emerging markets with complicated political, legal, and social issues like Indonesia. Why? Because on the ground, they face local communities and social groups that have suffered from the pandemic, and these groups will expect much from new investors in the form of employment, infrastructure, charity, and livelihood support, much, much more than from old energy investors. At the same time, new energy investors must collaborate with local partners, many of which are battle-hardened and jaded from helping the old energy investors that are fleeing. And that means they might exploit the inexperience of these newbies. Mm -hmm. 
And Indonesia is a market where, as you know, um, a fair bit of our work is actually reactive, helping clients do some complex problem solving as it relates to issues that they've gotten themselves into. Can you give us a little bit more in terms of examples of things you've seen clients get into trouble with in Indonesia on these exact issues? What should people on this call be thinking about and planning, planning ahead for? This year, Angela, I've met green investors who are in fact green about business risk in Indonesia. There was an outfit that wanted to build a wind farm, but didn't know the site was on a dangerous fault line. While there was another that was ready to build a hydro power plant in a post-conflict zone without knowing the land has not been demarcated for construction and was still run by former rebels. In both cases, they followed leads from local partners who failed to share details like Indonesia is a quake zone or former rebels are power holders in that post-conflict region. We have found many green investors have you know, these grand plans that naively think that you can invest in some sort of sociopolitical vacuum without putting much thought about complexities of issues, especially in a complicated, highly diverse, developing country like Indonesia. Like high-level support for new investments that they can easily get will not shield investors if turbines, solar panels, and generators do not produce power for the surrounding communities, when at the same time, they've taken the land from the locals without giving significant benefits in return. So it's fascinating because we've been covering Indonesia, obviously, as a firm for about 25 years. And a lot of the issues you're describing are ones that we've seen, the, again, the older school energy investors and other sectors struggle with for decades. And now it's a, it's like a new generation coming in with a, an exciting new sector, but the same old business risk that you really have to make sure you're on top of. Same so old, same old. Same old. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for that. Derek, let's turn to you. You cover a lot of markets for us in Southeast Asia and Vietnam in particular. Vietnam for us has been you know, one of the hottest markets. We work with a lot of clients looking at investments there across a number of sectors, um, including green related technology and investment. Give us, the, give us a read on what you're seeing in Vietnam. Sure, Angela. So in Vietnam, the pressure is working the other way, right? It's not so much the phasing out of coal that's causing an energy crunch. It's the sheer size of the manufacturing investments flowing into the country that's giving um, green energy transition an extra push. Um, as you know, large-scale coal and gas-powered um, power plants, they take a long time to build. And in fact, none of those uh, that are underway will come online before 2025. So the government really has no choice, right? Like solar and wind power must fill that gap to prevent a power shortage in the medium term, uh, which obviously could spoil their ambition to become this reliable uh, part of many companies' China plus one strategy. Um, a major issue I would start is with um, the country geography or simply the country shape. There's so much more sun and wind in southern Vietnam, uh, but the supply crunch and the energy demand, it's happening in the north, which is much more integrated with uh, the Chinese supply chains. Uh, secondly, um, gone also are the days of, of generous feed-in tariffs that attracted a lot of uh, green investments, the first wave of green investments in Vietnam. Um, energy developers now uh, will soon have to participate in a new auctioning uh, mechanism that are meant for government to set 
um, the share of renewable energy uh, that they want in their respective uh, energy plans. So these new developments, uh, I think, will definitely add new texture in terms of regulatory integrity and political risks. And of course, that's on top of, of the usual issues that an investor faces in Vietnam, right? A lot of um, in foreign investments in Vietnam, they usually rely on their local partners to sort a lot of things out. And, and many of our partners do diligence work, in fact, come out with issues uh, related to how their local partners obtain permits, uh, acquire land rights, and compensate those who have to, to, to relocate. And, and, and these continue to be uh, the concerning issues uh, for, for green uh, investments in Vietnam. So I know with the patches that you look after, we have a huge amount of work. Is there anything else you wanted to share in terms of potential risk and opportunities for investors or clients in various sectors that are on this call that, that you want to leave them with this morning? I think two things. Uh, first, partners due diligence, right? In this part of the world, um, a lot of businesses, as I've said, rely on their local partners. The local partners set the pace and, and the practices uh, that the foreign businesses have to just swallow. Um, secondly, it's regulatory risk. In, in Vietnam, as I've said, they have this new auctioning mechanism. It's unfamiliar to both investors and the government itself. So that's going to cause a lot of um, regulatory uncertainty. And that's the picture that we're seeing uh, in most places in Southeast Asia as well. Okay, great. Thank you. So we've spent a fair amount of time talking about energy. And the takeaway, obviously, is that climate risk is real and that we are seeing companies, as we look ahead, having to pay. It's going to cost. It's going to cost if you take action. It's going to cost if you don't take action. But as we've talked about on this call and then also you know, with the work that we're doing for clients, there's also a huge opportunity for companies to support in this sector to really see some good business growth in terms of technology, in terms of finance, et cetera which I guess is a great segue into our second seismic shift area, which is technology. So as we said before, COVID hasn't so much brought brand new trends to the fore as it has really accelerated massively some of the trends that were already in play. And one of those, of course, is digitization. So we saw with our clients prior to COVID, again, almost every single sector, there's been a massive push to digitize. And with COVID, that's only accelerated in, a, in just a massive way. So we help our clients in that regard, in a lot of areas, right? Not just with the big tech, tech platform companies, but also all the infrastructure behind that, which are everything from data centers to telecoms, et cetera. And they need a lot of help as it relates to market entry or partner due diligence, security and the like. But one of the key areas that they look at, and this is again, regardless of the sector that they're in, is actually tech regulation. So let's spend a few minutes talking about that. And Julia, I wanna start with you again, as you cover China. That's probably one of the premier issues that our clients, again, regardless of sector, are coming to us with, which is, you know, what is happening with technology regulation in China and how do you handle it? Yeah, thanks, Angela. And yes, I mean, countries all over Asia are, are really ramping up regulations aimed at managing the potential security risks linked to data and cross-border data transfers. We see data-intensive industries becoming more economically and politically important. So it's no surprise that regulators have expanded the rules that are governing the data that's perceived to be critical uh, as, a, as a national resource or as a potential national security risk. Um, in China, as, as in many of the other jurisdictions we cover, 
there's an alphabet soup of regulations many companies are struggling to keep on top of, never mind keep ahead of. Um, a lot has happened since the cybersecurity law came into effect in China in 2017. Uh, and this year in China has been especially productive from a, from a legislative point of view um, with the data security law, uh, the personal information protection law, and a host of other rules and guidelines uh, in the works that focus on everything from just ensuring companies have basic cybersecurity measures in place to data privacy, to identifying and protecting data that's considered important to national security, to regulating cross-border data transfer storage. These issues are some of the most frequent requests that our cyber and political and regulatory risk teams get from our clients. And it reflects how much more time and resources companies are having to put to navigating the new rules to either become compliant or remain compliant. And is this just for tech companies or does everyone have to worry about this? Uh, no, absolutely. This is not just an issue for traditionally data-heavy organizations. And that's why we spend so much time tracking and benchmarking cyber and data-related regulations, and particularly the enforcement in the region and globally. Really, this applies to anyone who is watching our discussion today. As cyber and data security regulations mature, Regulators are introducing more targeted rules and guidelines that are going to affect sectors beyond just information technology or those sectors that are already more regulated because they have sensitive data such as financial services or, or healthcare. All industries are becoming more data heavy as, as they upgrade and rely more on connected devices. Uh, the, the easy examples here are electric vehicles, autonomous driving, um, or more generally the, the introduction of IoT technology uh, across manufacturing. Um, and at the same time, many organizations are exploring new revenue models by harnessing and selling the data that they collect uh, and are developing services that are based on that data. Um, but that data, of course, comes with new regulatory and new political risks. Great. Thanks. Rima, let's turn to you. As you think about South Asia, what does the tech-related regulatory risk look like for our clients there? Thanks, Angela. I think India is the elephant in the South Asia room. So when I think about India's broader tech play, it looks like 3D chess to me. It's a 1.4 billion strong market is obviously a key battleground for global players, including the US and China when it comes to data and tech. I think India's main agenda here is to leverage the growing chasm between the West and China to launch its own domestic champions onto the world stage. India is quite clearly telling foreign companies that the route to entering India's tech and data market is by joining forces with the domestic champions that are being backed by the government. I mean, in the last few years, we have seen a flurry of investments by Google, Facebook, you name it, into Mukesh Ambani's Reliance Geo platforms. Now, such an economic play is nothing new. It's straight out of the playbook, in fact, of major economies like the US and China and, and things that they've done in the past where backing the expansion of a few large domestic companies is definitely more manageable and produces faster results than, than one that where the government has to play referee to free and open competition. So as Julia was saying, we do so much work in this sector. And I think for any foreign investor, the risk of being hit with new regulations will remain high in India as, as is the case for China. India has repeatedly used these tactics to assert local control over successful international businesses as well as sectors um, and will continue to do so in the future. 
But separately, I think in the realm of foreign investment, New Delhi will struggle to balance the need for a transparent, open and competitive investment environment with longer term security considerations and the demands for local businesses. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like China and India, we are looking at some quite serious technology related regulatory risks. Derek, let's turn to you. What are you seeing closer to home here in Southeast Asia? Is the situation as dire? Um, I think Southeast Asia uh, represents a bit more benign environment in terms of tech regulation than India-China. Singapore and their tech companies, for example, they're the strongest advocate of tech deregulation in the region, and they drive investment um, across the region too. But we've also done a lot of interesting work with, with two markets, uh, Philippines, Vietnam. These two are actually the fastest growing tech markets in the region, and that's based on both market estimates over the next few years and also the amount of client work that we've been delivering in, in these two markets. The Philippines, first of all, is a surprise. In, in most sectors, the Philippine government gets in the way of innovation and investment, but the tech sector here is surprisingly liberal. We know that the Philippine Central Bank is highly professionalized and they work closely with tech players to deliver uh, policies that affect them and many other companies. And then you have countries um, like Vietnam, right? Like where the picture is very different. Um, regulations in Vietnam are theoretically moving the other way, imposing greater state uh, control in areas of taxation, data, and, and content. Uh, Vietnam basically wants to regulate its tech sector like China um, regulates theirs. But while the ambition is there, um, um, Vietnamese authorities lack the implementation mechanisms that they have in China. So the end result is that Vietnam is much more willing to, to listen and to work with the preferences of the tech giants, Facebook, Google, um, um, Grab Taxi and others. Um, and the picture is similar in other markets like Thailand. Uh, so for many tech and non-tech clients in Southeast Asia, they've been seeing this growing gap between tech regulation theory and practice as a significant issue. And it's not just regulations that they've had to monitor, right? It's also how these regulations are interpreted and how social and, and political trends of the time affect arbitrary enforcement of these regulations. And in most cases, um, this lack of understanding we see uh, prevent, prevent our clients from making the most out of this uh, digital gold rush that's happening in Southeast Asia. And Julia, let's turn back to you. It's, the issue is not only data, right? It's it's also hardware. I know you work with a lot of clients that produce the hardware uh, in the tech industry and there's localization issues. Tell us about what you're seeing there. Uh, that's right. The politicization of technology is not just about data and software, uh, but about the hardware too. And it represents really one of the biggest challenges facing our clients' business strategies globally in the form of localization pressure. And localization is taking many forms. This could be about local data storage, as we've discussed. It could focus on the people you hire, where you put your manufacturing base. In some cases, we advise clients on it's driven by regulatory requirements often, though it's a commercial decision, but the interplay of business and politics here is making it harder for many companies to decide how and how much to localize and when and, of course, where. In the context of U.S.-China competition and broader rising geopolitical tensions, which are not going away just because he and Biden had a nice chat, you have growing formal and informal restrictions that are going to affect how, how competitive foreign companies can be. And if you get this wrong, it will be very hard to remain competitive. Ahmad, let's turn back to you and think about Indonesia. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we've been talking about quite a lot of political and regulatory risks as it relates to the technology sector, but there's also huge opportunity and not just with 
the traditional platform companies in Indonesia, we've seen, of course, with six unicorns now, but also on the hardware end, right? Like data centers where we do a lot of support. So in sum, is Indonesia set to be a boomtown for tech-related infrastructure, perhaps akin to what we saw, you know, with energy decades ago? What does that look like? Yes, that's kind of true, Angela. We've seen tech investors marching into Indonesia in the past year, and they target the millions of new customers in the country who are increasingly getting hungrier and hungrier for internet-based products and services. But just like the green energy investors, many tech investors are also naive, thinking they will get a red carpet treatment as they bring business to the country. On the ground, they will face a range of issues depending on their investment type. Data center investors, for example, seek land to expand Indonesia after Singapore slapped a moratorium on construction of data centers. While investors would easily get land at some industrial park in Indonesia with national government blessing, they'll face a different situation than in Singapore, where social issues are not a concern. In Indonesia, their data center construction will face locals demanding jobs. Tech investors, alas, will realize they cannot meet those expectations because many locals are unqualified for high-tech jobs. The skilled ones come from the country's elite, and that means tech companies enter a country and automatically turn into ivory towers that struggle to show they come to the country to benefit the masses. But, okay, so that's for hardware. What about um, bigger platform companies? What kind of risks do they face in Indonesia? It's got to be a better regulatory environment for them, let's say, than somewhere like China. Of course, if you compare it to China, um, but the tech companies that are rising in popularity in Indonesia are those that can provide jobs, services, and products for the masses, like e-commerce giants GoTo or couriers JNT which all don a local face, although they have foreign investors. Their local leaders are also close with regulators and lawmakers who are increasingly keen to further regulate the tech sector to protect consumers and their own constituents. Foreign investors without strong local, in, local partners will likely get blindsided by the upcoming regulations if they are missing from these regulatory conversations. In 2022, I expect more and more tech investors come to Indonesia, but they will find themselves elbowed out by local players when they fail to build important connections. Some Singaporean tech businesses are thriving in Indonesia, but if you zoom in, again, you can see how they have localized boardrooms and vehicles that can navigate through the Indonesian regulatory and political maze. So the message is, localize yourself or locals will push you away. Great words to take away. Thanks for that. So we've spent time talking about the energy transition. We've spent time talking about the technology transition. Let's talk about supply chains. That's the third main area that we've raised. What's actually happening? I mean, again, we spend all day, every day out talking to clients that have these supply chains or are part of the supply chains. Julia, let's start with you again with China. What are we seeing? Are, are, are supply chains actually shifting or are they not? So 
Often when people talk about these supply chain shifts, they're looking for signs of, of some sort of huge exodus of companies from China due to geopolitical tensions. And that is not happening either in supply chains or, or in investment more broadly. Obviously, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. Some companies are, are shifting supply chains due to new regulatory restrictions and, and far, far more of our clients are, are thinking about making shifts. But the vast majority of supply chain relocation from China remains linked to cost, to labor shortages or, or other resource management. China is still an incredibly attractive market to be producing in and for. Local authorities are still very welcoming of foreign investment, and while the costs have increased, the level of infrastructure, labor skills, the overall maturity of the regulatory and business environment remains very competitive. Our colleagues who are working on investment-linked due diligence here in China have been incredibly busy in 2020 and 2021 because China has been the comparatively stable and, and more predictable market to invest in compared with the rest of Asia. And this reflects how COVID has really affected the potential supply chain moves that we're discussing here. So in many cases, uncertainty in other markets has made it a lot harder to, to consider relocation. But I want to add in line with our theme today of transitions, while costs and, and overall supply chain resilience are still the main drivers of any changes, politics and trade restrictions will grow in importance and are going to be taking up even more time for business leaders. In our advisory work, we are seeing this increased supply chain risk assessments that we're doing. In those, we're, we're looking at political and regulatory sources of disruptions for companies' global footprint, or specifically at companies' ability to access technology in the future. And we're advising them on how to calibrate their supply chains for greater resilience, how to structure their procurement, or even their whole technology strategies to make sure they get ahead of those challenges. And Derek, for Southeast Asia, and also Vietnam comes up quite a bit, but obviously there's a lot of other markets here that have supply chains running through them besides Vietnam. What are you seeing here? So we're, we're seeing a similar picture as, as Julia explained. It's, it's the cost and operational realities are shaping uh, risks and opportunities here in Southeast Asia. Uh, first of all, the impact of COVID on supply chains, that will continue to be felt well into 2022. Um, and the biggest factor, of course, is that supply chains in Asia are exposed to different speed of post-COVID recovery. So even if the final assembly of a, if a product line, let's say, occurs in Vietnam, many parts and, and raw material would still be sourced from China Malaysia and other places which are going through completely um, different uh, COVID journeys and strategies than, than Vietnam. And in fact, COVID operational issues, these things tend to, uh, tend to be unique to each of these production hubs, right? Like in Malaysia, uh, which has vaccinated more than 75% of its population, uh, the main worry for our multinational clients is still around capacity limits for their factories. Uh, in Vietnam, Thailand, these places, as you would recall, they sta started out as COVID success stories, but maybe because of that, they've become a bit more complacent when it comes to procuring and distributing vaccines. Uh, in these places, our clients are less worried about capacity limits, but more about the cost of, of you know, government uh, requirements on housing, uh, quarantine testing for their workers. And this, of course, uh, makes it more expensive to produce there and turns off a lot of workers as well. Like re labor retention right now is a huge issue uh, in Vietnamese factories. So I guess the bottom line that I'm driving at is that after a year and a half of, of disruption and anxieties from COVID, 
um, companies can't simply decide to turn the lights back on and then expect everything to, to return to normal. Uh, we've seen and helped companies cope with this new COVID reality over the past few months. And we continue to see, uh, for example, a small COVID change, a, co a COVID rule change in Malaysia or in the Philippines disrupting an entire uh, production line across uh, Asia. And what these client assignments uh, over the past few months have told us, I think, is that these disruptions will keep coming. And, and usually th these will come from the least um, expected places. I do want to do one quick speed round, kind of 20 seconds each, <laughs> if you can keep to it. What are, for your markets, what is the top risk you want people on this call to be aware of as they look into 2022? We'll start with Julia, and then we'll go to uh, Derek, Ahmad, and Rima. Julia. Sure. So as as you can read in our, our analyst pick on China by my colleague Jixing, this is a really important year for Beijing politically uh, as it's heading into the once in five years party congress that's happening late in 2022. The potential for legal and regulatory challenges for operational and supply chain disruptions um, and the risk to overall companies' competitiveness and reputation are only going to grow. And trying to address that with a triage approach is not going to cut it. Uh, companies really need to rethink their whole business strategy through the geopolitical lens. And the companies that do this can survive and thrive in this new era. Great. Derek. Sure. So apart from geopolitics, which, which Julia mentioned, I think we should not forget domestic politics, especially in Southeast Asia, right? Like in Thailand, you have uh, a military government that seems to be running out of ideas and where the future of the monarchy is for the first time on the table. Uh, in the Philippines, you have a highly acrimonious election that's bound to shake things up with, you know, the former uh, strongman Ferdinand Marcos's son possibly becoming uh, the president. And then in Myanmar, of course, the crisis and conflict there will only get worse, which is very unfortunate for the people of Myanmar, but also for business. I think uh, what people forget to see is that Myanmar is one of China's and the world's top source for a variety of rare earths that are used in consumer electronics. And so a full-blown conflict there uh, would probably cause disruption in supply and cost of these key inputs globally. So again, it, my, my main point is that we shouldn't discount the impact of Asia's uh, messy politics on, on, on supply chains, broader uh, issues in the region. Mm -hmm. Great point. Ahmad, let's turn to you. So 2022 is the year to invest in Indonesia. Mind you, the window is short. In 2023, all eyes and energy will be on the run-up to the 2024 elections that term-limited President Jokowi cannot join. On the back of a post-pandemic economic growth, Jokowi wants investors to flood in, and he is likely to be generous on incentives so that he can seal a real legacy. But if you're late, the window will close and you will face politicians busy winning over inward-looking nationalistic constituents or a less reformist president. So Indonesia, it's now or never. Okay. Rima. This is the time. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I think uh, the energy and technology transition trends in India, in fact, also supply chain dynamics in India, serve as a great case study for the region and everything that we've been discussing today on this panel. Now, specifically on energy transition, Prime Minister Modi surprised everyone by coming up at the last moment with a massive decarbonization by 2070 pledge. While there is a lot there to unpack uh, in that statement, I would watch out for the finance and tax plan that will follow perhaps next year around the annual budget rollout. 
Those plans will again introduce new regulations which will determine the green technology solutions that are going to be prioritized and accelerated, not only in India, but also in the region. And of course, who will have access to funds? Again, up and coming rules will also influence the future of India's fossil fuels industry in a world that is uh, decarbonizing at an unequal pace. So that's something that I would watch out for. Mm -hmm. So it just remains for me to thank everyone for joining and thank our panel. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining today and have a great day ahead. Thank you. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.